Please take your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 4. We're in 1 Timothy chapter 4. We've had a couple messages in chapter 4 already. Uh, verse four, chapter 4 verse 1 says, But the Spirit, speaking of the Holy Spirit, explicitly says, makes it really clear, makes it obvious that in later times some will fall away from the faith. There will be a falling away from the faith. We've talked about that. The Bible predicts that there would be an apostasy. Jesus said many would fall away. Paul says some here because he's speaking specifically in regard to his specific doctrines of demons that he has in mind. And he articulates one of them very clearly. And then we did a whole study on, you know, that the Bible does indeed teach that you can fall away. Uh, and then he says paying attention to deceitful spirits. Deceitful spirits, more than one, there's many of them, and doctrines of demons. Last Wednesday night, we looked at the reality that there are, that we are in a spiritual war. That's why we're warned to put on the full armor of God that we may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Amen. And so we can stand in the evil day, and having done everything to stand, that we will persevere. And we're supposed to be alert unto prayer for all the saints and praying in the spirit, right? Uh, get interceding for our brothers and sisters in Christ. I, I hope you're praying for your brothers and sisters in Christ. Amen? So there's, a, there's practical things we do in regard to putting on the armor of God, and one of those things is praying for each other. Amen? You know, Lisa and I, we make it part of our prayer life is to pray for you guys and pray not only for you guys, but the saints around the world. There's, we have millions and millions of brothers and sisters in Christ. Amen? And it's important to pray for them. Now, it's interesting, though. He warns about doctrines of demons and seducing spirits. And he articulates... Uh, in the following verses after that, some rigid legalism that these spirits would teach, which we'll get into a next study. But at this study, I thought, you know, let's talk about some of the more popular doctrines of demons or what would be, what would be doctrines of demons that are in the church today, okay? You have to realize that the enemy is very adept at coming at us he uses counterfeits. And a little bit later, in 2 Timothy, when he deals with, in 2 Timothy, he deals with counterfeit teachings of, he says, there'll be those that have a form of godliness in 2 Timothy 3. In the last days, he says, terrible times will come. And he says, it'll be like Jannies and Jambres, you know, who opposed the truth when they opposed Moses. They was, were the magicians that counterfeited what Moses, the miracles Moses was doing. You remember that? He, Aaron's rod, boom, throws it down, turns into a what? Snake, what happens? They do the same thing. They're able to imitate and counterfeit a few of the miracles. So Satan is a counterfeiter. And that's why he'll use religion in his deceptions. And uh, false doctrines are meant to be destructive. They're contrary to the teachings of Christ. We're called to be on the narrow road and build our lives on the rock of Jesus Christ. Amen. And his word. Amen. But he contrasts that with the broad road that leads to destruction, which has false prophets in front of it. And those false prophets, and Satan is through those false prophets after us. And so he says that behind these false doctrines that can infiltrate the church, there are actually demons seducing spirits. You have to understand, false doctrines are from hell, so to speak. The Bible talks about how the tongue is set on fire from hell. Hell represents, you know, just the power of, you know, 
Satan's kingdom in some ways. And when Jesus used it that way, when he talked about the gates of hell would not prevail against the church, amen? Amen. So the church is going to stand. But what Satan does, he seeks to beckon to seduce people from the narrow path. And he uses a myriad of false doctrines to seduce the church. In fact, Paul deals with some of these false doctrines in 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. That's what my mind went to. I said, what false doctrines does the Apostle Paul deal with in his letters to Timothy? We already talked about gnosis, that false knowledge, amen? The Gnosticism that was incipient, what we call proto-Gnosticism, was already in the early church period. We dealt with that in chapter 3. At the end of chapter 3, we dealt with Gnosticism. And so I'm not going to articulate and get into Gnosticism because we had a, almost a, much of that study had to do with Gnosticism and how that was, and we looked at all these verses in First and Second Timothy and how like, wow, and Irenaeus and Tertullian and Hippolytus and others who were, uh, even some of those fathers quoting Timothy when they were dealing with Gnosticism because Paul t- speaks of that which is falsely called Gnosis in First Timothy chapter 6, 19 and 20. And that was one of the false doctrines that had come about. If you're like, yeah, talk more about that because I wasn't here. I encourage you to get that tape. <laughs> or we don't really have tapes anymore, but go and listen to it digitally, right? Go check it out, you know? And uh, because I don't want to re- even review all that because I've got plenty of other things to say today. Uh, what are some other false doctrines? Well, if you go back to 1 Timothy chapter 1, just go back up a couple chapters. And he talks about how there's those in verse 7. Well, verse 6, he's concerned. He sees some are straying what? For some men strain from these, these have turned aside to fruitless discussion. Because he talks about the goal of our instruction is you know, love from a pure heart in chapter 1, verse 5. A good conscience, a, a sincere faith. But some have gone astray from a sincere faith. And verse 7 says, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they are, make confident assertions. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, realizing the fact that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers and immoral men, homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. So these men were taking the law, and when you back up to the first few verses of chapter 1, he warns about these endless genealogies, you know, and most scholars agree, and I'm in agreement with these scholars and these commentators and these Bible teachers, that there were those that were teaching you how to keep the law of Moses to be right with God. And we know that was a huge problem in the early church. We know in the book of Galatians, the Judaizers came in, and they were saying you had to be circumcised to be saved. You remember that? And they even had a church council, the first church council that we read about in church history is in Acts 15, where Paul and James and Peter and, you know, John, these brothers meet, and they say, no, you don't have to keep the law of Moses to be saved. For we couldn't keep the law, and our forefathers couldn't keep it, and we're saved through Christ. Yet Paul warns that there's a different gospel. And here he warns about these Judaizers who are misusing the law, saying the law is not given for who? The righteous is not given for those who've come to faith in Christ. It's given for the wicked because it's a tutor, as Paul says in Galatians, that leads people to Christ. Amen? Now, that doesn't mean we're not under a law. We're under the law of who? The law of Christ. We're not under the law of Moses, but some are saying, oh, we still got to keep the law of Moses. That was a lie. And that was a doctrine of demons, by the way, in the church. 
We know that because Paul says in Galatians chapter 3 when he's warning them, who has what? Do you remember that? Who has bewitched you? Who's put a spell on you? He says, even if we, chapter 1, verse 7 through 9, or an angel from heaven preached another gospel to you, then which we preach to you, let him be what? A curse. A curse. So d- demonic entities were teaching that you have to keep the law to be saved. Are you understanding how there's doctrines, there's, there's demons behind false doctrines? Because Satan is after us. And that's why when you when I encourage people, man, we have all kinds of people, you know, that come to Christ, you know, uh, through our ministry, we praise God, but there, a lot of them aren't here in Simi Valley. So encourage them, find Bible teaching churches that don't teach false doctrines. And it's getting harder and harder today to do that. It's heartbreaking. But you have to value truth, amen? You have to value truth and realize there's a spiritual war. So we've just seen Paul's warning about doctrines of demons, and that's one of them. He dealt with it in the very first chapter, right? He has a whole book, Galatians, dealing with it. And the author of Hebrews also deals with Jews that are in the verge of committing the posse and go back to go back to the law. Remember that? Another doctrine of demons that Paul warns about is what today has fully blown into coming uh, the church, and it's called the health and wealth gospel, or the word faith movement. And it's the idea that God wants everybody to be, you know, believers don't ever have to be sick again. And if they're sick, it's because they don't have enough faith or they're in sin. And all believers should be wealthy and, you know, have mansions and just, you know, be living it up. Well, look at 1 Timothy chapter 6. Look what Paul says there. 1 Timothy chapter 6. And when you go to 1 Timothy chapter 6, uh, it's, kind of, it's really interesting because when you hit around verse, ah, uh, oh man, he just warns them about verse 7 or, or verse uh, 6. But godliness actually is a means of great gain when, what? Accompanied by contentment. What's he bringing? Correction. Because guess what the false teachers are teaching? Look at verse 5. He talks about men of constant friction between men depraved of depraved mind and deprived of the truth who suppose that what? Godliness is a means of gain. If you have the NIV, what does it say? Anybody have the NIV? A, a means of financial gain. That's the context there. And they're teaching that today. If you turn on Trinity Broadcasting Network, most of the teachers will be saying that living a godly life means you'll, you'll be rich, you know? Many of the teachers teach that. But then he says, but godliness actually is a means of great gain when it's accompanied by contentment. It's talking about spiritual gain, amen? Verse 7, For we have brought nothing into the world, so we, can take, we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. But those who want to get rich and fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires, which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. And some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But flee from these things, you man of God. And pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life of which you were called. And you were made a good confession in the presence of many witnesses. So many, by longing to be rich, have wandered from the faith. Now, those are temptations that Christians will face when you look at the parable of the sower. But it's one thing to face temptation and say, no, I'm sticking on the narrow road. I'm going to seek first the kingdom of God. He's going to add my needs to me and meet my needs according to his riches and glory. And he might bless you with a lot of money. But if he blesses you with a lot of money, it's because he wants you to be a blessing also to others. Amen? 
because he goes on to say that God's given us all things to enjoy a little bit later in the chapter, but charge those who are rich in this world to share with others. In other words, also make sure you're a blessing to other people. So we have to watch out for these doctrines of demons. And it's, this is like one of the most popular false doctrines in the church today. Literally millions and millions and millions and millions of Christians because it's the most popular doctrine taught on so-called quote-unquote Christian TV. It really is. And this is taught constantly on, on Christian TV that, uh, you know, by a lot of these teachers, Kenneth Copeland, uh, Creflo Dollar, you know, uh, these men are constantly teaching these, these false doctrines that God wants everybody. And it's just heartbreaking. What's heartbreaking about it is it says it's because of these men who are teaching these damnable heresies. They're called damnable heresies in 2 Peter chapter 2. It says because of them, and it says that they'll make merchandise of you. Of course, they say, give me this much and give this much to my ministry and God will give you this, give you a hundred times more. You know, say they'll teach that. Uh, you know, they'll mail you. I've seen one guy show me, he had a, a shower cap they sent him, a holy shower cap that he'd be blessed if he wore that in the shower, you know. And I'm like, this is just so ridiculous. The Roman Catholic Church had done that for years, right? Selling, selling indulgences and everything else. But it's really heartbreaking because that's really, there's a preponderance of that teaching in the church today. So Paul deals with these things in the scripture. And it's interesting because many of these pe people that teach this, they're constantly saying the Lord gave them these new revelations. Kenneth Hagin is considered the, 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 the grandfather of the word faith movement. He claims that, a, that Jesus was appearing to him. But when you look, there's a book by D.R. McConnell. If you want to check it out, I'd order it by D.R. McConnell. It was his master's thesis when he was in Oral Roberts University of all places, and it was against the word faith movement. It's called A Different Gospel. And what he does in that book, he shows where Kenneth Hagin, the grandfather of this movement, over and over again says he has these revelations from Jesus about this whole word faith, name it, claim it. We're these little gods. You can speak reality into existence by name it, confessing it, you know. You know, confess your riches, you know. And I've shown you before where there actually will, actually some of them will say, you can command God. In fact, God tells you to command him. So command him like a genie. Okay, they'll actually teach that. Some of these top teachers say that you can command God. This is serious, serious stuff. And we have to make sure we don't fall for it because millions, and guess what? You need to know about this and you need to know how to answer people that are into it because if you're talking to other Christians, you're going to run into Christians that follow these teachings. So uh, D.R. McConnell's book, A Different Gospel, I found really good because he shows these quotes from uh, when he had these encounters. Kenneth Hagin claims to have had these encounters with Jesus. But then he shows in a column right next to the column where he has these long quotations from Jesus and these new revelations, quotes from E.W. Kenyon, who picked them up from a man named Quigley in the mind science cults. And he said this was from Jesus, but he was actually copying from a guy named E.W. Kenyon, saying this is what Jesus taught him. And it's, he's just a, these, are, these guys are liars. And so these are really doctrines of demons. And Quigley and a lot of these people were into mysticism, mind science cults, and so forth. So this is very, very important that we understand that. So that's another false doctrine that's in the church. You know, that you have to keep the law to be saved. The word faith movement. Uh, you, and these are doctrines that are serious. So if somebody thinks that they, they've got to keep be circumcised, they've got to keep the law to be right with Jesus, you have to warn them that that's a different gospel. Paul said that. That's very serious because that means your faith isn't in Christ alone for salvation. And somebody who believes that God wants them to be rich and healthy and wealthy, 
Well, they could actually be saved when they believe that Jesus died for them and so forth, but they could actually get led astray into all of a sudden chasing riches, right? And get their eyes off of Jesus and be led away, as Paul said, many have wandered from the, some have wandered from the faith because of the teaching that godliness is a means of financial gain. So this is all serious. And then in 2 Timothy chapter 2, he deals with a couple men named Hymenaeus and, and Alexander, uh, the coppersmith who had done Paul much harm. And it's interesting because he warns about these men in verse... Alexander is mentioned in 1 Timothy chapter 1, but in 2 Timothy 2, Hymenaeus is mentioned again with Philetus. And he says, but avoid, in verse 16, worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, men who have gone astray from the truth, saying that what? The resurrection has already taken place, and they upset the faith of some. So then there was what we call an over-realized eschatology, you know, claiming that this, things have been fulfilled that haven't. And I mentioned this not too long ago, so I won't spend a lot of time on this uh, and get into the depths of it, but just to say, though, that they're claiming that the resurrection had already come to pass, and that's a doctrine of demons. And by doing so, it says they were what? Overthrowing the faith of some. Now, when Paul says in 1 Timothy 4.1, that the Holy Spirit speaks expressly that later times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of demons. You have to realize this is a spiritual war that we are in. And the, now today, right now, it's called full preterism, and it's blowing up right now throughout the body of Christ. Mark, uh, 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 well, we've got a bunch of marks here, you know. But we're dealing with uh, a lot of preterists in the past, and we've had some even couple people in the church. I went through that whole story recently, so I'm not going to recount the story, but it's devastating to people's faith. It breaks my heart. Why do you think I warn against false doctrine? Because I see people fall into it all around the body of Christ, and I, and I see all kinds of churches filled with it, you know, and I want to make sure that we don't fall into it, because in our own fellowship, I've seen some people become preterists and then totally fall away from the faith. And preterism basically means, it's a word from a Latin word, which means past. It speaks of Basically, prophetic statements that are still future, and it makes them past. Full preterism takes and says, we've already been resurrected. A lot of full preterists are saying, we're in the new heaven and new earth right now. There's no more tears. You know, and it's all, this is it, you know. Wow, what a letdown, right? This is heaven, you know. I know there's still tears here. I had a lot of tears earlier today, you know, because I found out about something that happened somewhere real close to us, and just broke my heart. And, uh, but we're not there yet, guys. And thankfully, we're not there yet. Amen? Amen. So it's interesting. Uh, all these lies are just so, so popular. Uh, demons are behind lies. In fact, go to Second Paul mentions another lie that he indicates that demons are behind. Go to Second Thessalonians, right before First and Second Timothy. Second Thessalonians chapter 2. We won't spend much time here either. But I want to show you how so many of these doctrines are connected to demonic entities. Paul says, now we request you, we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, right? I mean, this is what he's requesting us in regard to what? What's Paul talking about? The coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and our what? Gathering together to him. What's that called? I can't hear you. That's the rapture, Amen. 
He wants, us, he wants to warn us regarding the time of the rapture. Look at verse 3. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless what happens? The apostasy comes first, and what? The man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who poses and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes a seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. So Paul warns concerning Christ's coming, and are being gathered together to him, right? That we're not to be deceived, because that day, Christ's coming to gather us together, will not happen or will not take place until two events happen first. What two events? The posse are falling away. Amen. That's one. Then what? The Antichrist. What's the Antichrist going to do first before Christ comes to gather us? He's going to sit in the temple of God. He says concerning Christ's coming, and that the Greek word there is parousia. Some pronounce it parousia. Okay. But the, the Christ's parousia will not come until these two events happen first. Then after the Antichrist is revealed, look what happens. Look at verse 8. Then the lawless one will be what? Revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end with the appearance, the epiphania of his coming parousia, with the epiphania of his parousia. Isn't that awesome? Concerning Christ's coming, are being gathered together to him. Concerning Christ's coming, are, are being gathered together. Think about it again. Concerning Christ's parousia, and are being gathered together to him. That won't happen until the fallen away happens first. That Antichrist is the temple. Then when the Antichrist is revealed, the Lord will destroy, destroy him with his epiphania, the brightness of his coming, or his parousia. There it is, as a parousia, after the Antichrist. That's the biblical order. But Joe, you're saying that that could be a doctor of demons if we get that wrong? Oh yeah, look at verse 2. He says, in the verse I skipped, listen to what he says, verse 2, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a what? A spirit. A pneuma. It's, talking about, it's not talking about the Holy Spirit. It's talking about a demon. A, a demon or a fallen spirit or a message like a prophecy or a what? Letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. If you have the King James, it says, as though the day of the Lord is at hand, it says in King James. Like, I mean, it's any moment. You say, no, it's not any moment. Okay? At hand. Well, which is it? Is it at hand or is it has come? Well, I think the best translation of that, uh, and when I, we go in depth, Lord willing, sometime in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, uh, when we go actually look at it slowly, like we're going through Timothy, we'll see that there's papyri that actually translates this this construction in the Greek contemporaneous with Paul uh, or thereabouts to mean to has come to be at hand. So the concern was is that some were teaching and they were saying that, guess what? Look what Paul teaches. Like some people try to say, it. oh, Paul teaches this, this preacher of rapture. No, he doesn't. He says, don't be deceived as though he teaches it from his letters or a message like a prophecy or a spirit. Don't fall for any of these revelations. Why in the world would Satan want to get us, or demons want us to get to believe that Jesus was coming before the tribulation? Why? So we would not be what? That's right. So we would not be ready to endure it. That's why. And what's amazing to me, in Matthew 24, when the tribulation starts, guess what happens right away? Right when they hand you over to be killed, it says, you, it says that Christians will be hated by all nations at the beginning of the tribulation. Look at Matthew 24, verses 9 and 10, 8, 9 and 10. You'll be hated by all nations because of my name's sake. And they'll be putting you to death. And they'll kill you. By the way, why in the world is that happening? If we were raptured, that could happen. Where's all the Christians to hate on? Where's all the Christians to kill if we just all got raptured? It'd be a non-event, but we're still here. But he said, at that time, many will fall away. And I would encourage you, if you have not seen it yet, 
I have a debate online with Dr. Doug Stoffer. It's a friendly debate. And we're over in, in Colorado, Twin Peaks. It's a pre-trip prophecy conference. Huge. I think the biggest one every year is theirs, or it's one of the biggest. And they asked me to debate it because I did a video called Left Behind or Stray. And I debated it. We had a great debate. But if you haven't seen that yet, you can go to YouTube and just type in the great debate, you know. Type in my name or Dr. Stoffer's name, and we have a really great debate. But one thing I do is I show quote after quote after quote from pre-tribbers who say, if God lets us go through that time, then he's evil. You know, I'm not going to follow him. I'm setting people up for a great, great big fall. Because they're saying that now, how much worse is it going to be when you actually are going through it? And you believe God lied to you. And this can't be the mark of the beast because I haven't been raptured yet. So, of course, I'll take that number. No, it's going to be a big deception. But what's interesting to me when we're looking at 1 Timothy 4, guys... And I haven't talked about this, but I brought it up recently again. But I, I thought, man, but we have so many new people in the fellowship. I want to catch you up to speed a bit, you know? So I'll hit some things really quick, but we have more in-depth teachings online where you can get more into and watch the debate so I don't have to do whole full-blown studies on the time of the rapture. I'm sure I'll do some of those here and there uh, in the future again, obviously. But they're there. They're sitting waiting for you to listen to. Got whole kinds, all kinds of series on these kinds of things because these are important things. When there's warnings like this, and then this is what blows me away, and it should blow each of you away as a conscientious, concerned Christian that cares about your brothers and sisters. When you see warnings like this, and then you see the church believing just the opposite, that should make you very concerned. And that should make you want to, you should be saying, praise God. I know a ton of people listen to him, and praise God that he's saying these things because people need to be warned about this. Now you might say, well, I already know because I've heard you say this before. Well, praise God. You're probably going to hear me say John 3, 16 a thousand more times if you stay in the fellowship too. So some things that need to be repeated, amen? So this is important stuff. So I encourage you to uh, check out that further. We have a whole series on the time of the rapture and so forth. And, but it's interesting to me that he warns about a spirit. Do you catch that in verse 2? It mentions a spirit. You can be deceived by a spirit on this doctrine. And we have not, we also have a video called Left Behind or Led Astray, where I go into the occult history of this doctrine. It's there with Edward Irving and, and John Darby, who was subscribed to Irving's magazine, and it first came among the Irvingites who claimed that there was an outbreak of the gifts of the Spirit and they were getting new revelations. And one of the new revelations was we're going to raptured before the tribulation takes place. And a lot of people that came out of that movement, it just disintegrated, and Irving became just totally heretical, the leader of that movement. And I show testimony from people that were getting these revelations saying this, the demonic spirits were deceiving us. But by that time, it just took off through the body of Christ in the early 1800s. Really interesting. Now, we believe very strongly in a rapture, amen? But the rapture is when? At Jesus' second coming, right? Amen? The Bible says we've been saved the first time, right? It's Jesus' first coming when we were saved. He appeared the first time in reference to what? Our, our, our sin, to take care of our sin. That's why he died on the cross. But it says he'll return a second time in regard to our salvation, our final salvation. It doesn't say he's returning a second and then a third time, guys. Amen? Okay. Now, we've already covered, I don't know, one, two, three, four. One, two, three, four false doctrines or so that are... And I've been showing you where some of them, it actually shows that they're tied to the demonic realm, like the Judaizers in Galatians, or this one here. Well, another very, very popular doctrine, which is, I believe, very spiritual, 
And I was asked, Chad and I did a podcast, which hasn't aired yet, and I just hit it briefly compared to what I'll talk about a little bit tonight, because it's so serious, because it's tied to our salvation, is the idea that's being taught by millions of professing Christians believe it. Millions of professing Christians believe it. And millions of these professing believers that claim to be Christians that believe it, believe that they're still saved even though they're living in adultery, even though they're living, getting drunk all the time, even though they're smoking pot, even though they're doing other various drugs, even though they're involved in uh, homosexual activity, and even though they're involved in uh, pursuing money above God, even though they're involved in all kinds of hatred and unforgiveness toward others because they're not moved by these things, because they believe once they've been saved, they're always saved no matter what they do after that. And so many people are believing this. So one of the things Chad and I were asked, and one of the things, questions we asked in a, a podcast recently, a couple weeks ago we dealt with a podcast, what's the greatest threat to the church outside the church? And we both picked one thing. Then this week, one of the, qu the questions we got was, what's the greatest threat from within the church? And I text Chad, I go, man, it, you know, we could cover the new apostolic reformation. Millions of people are on that train right now, which believes we're going to take over the world from, and, and run Hollywood, and the church is going to take over. By the way, a lot of false doctrine, it doesn't just hurt people in the church, but it hurts our witness to people outside the church. There's so many people that are saying, I'm going to take over Hollywood. I'm going to become part of Hollywood, and I'm going to change Hollywood. And then 30, 40 years later, Hollywood's even worse, and the only one that got changed was them. Okay? I'm not saying you can't work in Hollywood, but, don't, but be, shine the light of Jesus and make sure you're not compromising your walk. Amen? But don't get any strange idea that you're going to outchange Hollywood, and they're going to say, oh, you know what? Yeah, we want Christians to tell us what to write in our scripts. That's not going to happen, guys. The road is narrow, at least life, and few are those who find it. Amen? And, and when you start trying to take over the world for Christ, what message does that send to the world that you want to rule them? But wait a minute. Isn't Christ going to rule the world? Yeah. And when he does, nobody's going to be able to say a word about it. Because every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. Amen? But I'll tell you what. These doctrines cause people to, you know, how about the doctrine that, guess what? God wants us all to be rich, and, and people are running after money, and, and so forth. That causes, it's a bad witness. In fact, Peter warns them that not only make merchandise of you, does he say, but he says this. He says they'll make merchandise of you, but he also says this. He says, because of their teaching, the way of truth will be maligned. Or another translation says the way of truth. This is a second Peter chapter 2. That in the last days, he warns that, you know, there'll be these damnable heresies out under the church and they'll make merchandise of you and through their sensuality, the way of truth will be brought into disrepute. I remember when I used to set tiles, the tile setter was one of my jobs before I became a pastor and I loved that job. And I remember uh, one of the guys, another tile setter, I'd witnessed to him. And then right around that time, Jim Baker and Jimmy Swaggart, all that stuff was going down. And he started pointing at Jim Baker and how, you know, the money-grabbing preachers and all that stuff. And he made a joke. They're prophets. They're, they're, they're non-profit prophet ministries. P-R-O-P-H-E-T, but F-I-T. And I could get a little smirk from me. Like, yeah, that's kind of funny. But you know what I did? I took him to 2 Peter 2. I go, look, it's actually fulfilling prophecy. Because it says these guys would come and they'd make merchandise of people. And because of them, you would say things. You're fulfilling Bible prophecy. 
that made him really think, you know. <laughs> uh, but, it, but the thing is, these doctrines, they, they just lead to the whole idea that you can be a Christian and claim to be a Christian, but you can just live like the world and do the wicked things the world does and be on the broad road leads to destruction. That's probably the whole idea that once you're saved, you're always saved no matter what you do. It not only hurts people in the church, but it destroys a lot of the witness of people in the church where people outside don't want anything to do with Christians because they call them hypocrites because they don't see any difference between them and the world. Do you understand how destructive this is? So I said, Chad, I go, since we're dealing with the greatest threats in the church, I'm going to pick once saved, always saved. He goes, man, I knew you were going to pick that. That was the best one. I go, he, cause he agrees. You know, I wrote a, 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 a snippet, a, a, a brother said, Hey Joe, he wrote a book against this doctrine, huge book. It was like five, 600 pages long. He goes, Joe, can you give a write up? He asked different people to give a write up, but he put mine on the back of his book because my quote said, this false doctrine has down more souls than all the other false doctrines the church put together. That's because you have so many people believing it. Where on Christian TV, so-called, you have this health and wealth gospel, name and claim it, we're little gods, do what thou wilt, basically. God wants you, you know. But on Christian radios where you get the teaching, you can be saved and do whatever you want if you fall away. Not all the radio preachers. And praise God, there's some very godly radio preachers out there that don't preach this, praise God. That's true. Uh, and... But I'm going to give you some scriptures to show you how diabolical this is. In Genesis chapter 3, that's when the first lie is told to human beings. And Adam and Eve, they have eternal life. They are children of God. If you look at Luke chapter, uh, you go through the genealogy of Luke, I think it's around chapter 3, verse 38 or so. It says, and, and Adam was a... It says, so-and-so was a son of so-and-so, and so-and-so begat so-and-so, and all that. And it goes all the way. And Adam was a son of God. He was a child of God. He would have lived forever. But the very foundations, the very foundations of the, of the occult New Age movement today are in those lies. Hath God said, cast doubt upon the word of God. The word of God is not sufficient. Satan says, hath God said, right there is the first lie we see, one of the first lies in the garden. And then Satan also says, thou shalt what? Surely not what? Thou shalt surely not die. Think about that. If you want to know, when you're talking to people and they're calling the New Age movement, which is the, the Hollywood religion, a lot of you know, people are into it throughout the country. And you're talking to them, they're into the occult. You ask them, well, first of all, they've, they bought these four lies. Thou shalt not, or hath God said, they cast doubt on God's word, Right? And also the lie, the lie that you shall not surely die. Remember that one? Thou shalt surely not die. Twisting God's word. Today, it's taught in the New Age movement that you don't die. We just all live forever. We're just reincarnated over and over again. Then the third lie is that you could tap in to occult knowledge that's forbidden by God to get greater truth. The tree of knowledge of good and evil. Well, today in the New Age movement, God forbids what? divination and mediumship and psychics and tarot cards and all those things. And the agent says, no, this is good because you get new revelations. That's three lies. What's the fourth lie? You shall be as who? You shall be as God. That's all, all these four teachings are in the New Age movement today. They form the basis of it. But some of these are in the church. You shall be as God. Is that in the church? Yep, it's believed by who? The word faith people. That we're God's. 
The lie from the serpent in Eden is now taught in the church, in the prosperity churches. But there's another doctrine from Genesis 3 that Satan uses that has gotten way more traction outside of not just the word faith movement and the New Age movement, but in the church. Many Christians believe they can rebel against God and they shall surely not die. Once they're saved, they're always saved no matter what they do. In fact, look at what Jesus said in John 8. Now I'm telling you right now, first person I ever saw come to Christ came under this teaching and my wife and I were talking to her. My wife was talking to her first and she was super drunk. I love this guy. I still pray for her and she came out of it, thankfully. hope she's doing well. But she went to a church and she learned that no matter what she did, she was chosen and she'd be chosen no matter how, but she rebelled against God. And my wife asked her because she was visibly drunk. She said, Don't, aren't you concerned? And she said, you know what? Either I'm chosen and I can't be unchosen no matter what she do, right? Or I'm not chosen and there's nothing I could do to be chosen. Uh, isn't that interesting? Because it's almost like she's quoting the Gnostics where Origen, one of the early church fathers, warned about the Gnostics. He said, they believe that those who are lost are lost in such a way that they can't be saved because they're predestined to damnation. And others are saved in such a way that they can't be lost because they're predestined to salvation, he was saying. Well, that was considered a heresy in the early church. The early church fathers were exposing that. Irenaeus, the top, one of the, the, my favorite apologists in the second century, almost single-handedly came against Gnosticism. He says the Gnostics will take women in adultery and believe that since they're saved, they can even have women in adultery and their salvation is not in jeopardy. Woo! None of the early Christians were believing that, though. Isn't that interesting? Look at what Jesus says in the Gospel of John. He gives us a very, very important uh, warning. John chapter 8. And look at what he says here. Very, very important warning here. Verse 51. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone, what? Keeps my word, he will, what? Never see death. What's the promise? If you keep his word. Now, if Eve and Adam and Eve had kept his word, right? Nope. God said, if day we eat, we shall die. Thou shalt not surely die. And so they're like, nope, we're going to keep his word. And if they would have kept his word, guess what they would have never seen? Death. Well, now what does Jesus tell, tell us? If we keep his word, we shall never see death. Is he talking about physical death or spiritual death? We all see physical death. Unless the rapture comes in our lifetime, but it's point of man wants to die, but after this judgment, Hebrews 9, 27. So Jesus is talking about spiritual death. And he warns us that we have to keep his word. But Satan comes and says, you don't have to keep his word. Thou shalt surely not die. You won't see death. But Jesus said to the church at Smyrna in Revelation chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, he says, the devil's going to cast you into prison to test you for 10 days. He says, be faithful unto death, and you shall receive the crown of life. He that overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. Amen? If you keep his word, you'll never see the second death. You'll have the crown of life in the end. Amen? So it's so important that we get this. Now, Jesus gives wonderful promises. Look at John 10. This is such a beautiful promise. John chapter 10, 
27. My sheep, what? Hear my voice. And I know them, and they what? Follow me. The word hear and the word follow in the Greek are in the continuous or present or linear tense. They continually, you could translate it, my sheep hear my voice and they continue to hear my voice. My sheep follow me and they continue to follow me. Who are the sheep? What do a sheep do? They continue to hear the shepherd's voice. They continue to follow him, right? And I give what? Eternal life to them. And they will what? Never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. So guess what? I love that. I love verse 29 too. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Verse 30, I and the Father are one. So praise God, you guys. Are you trusting in Jesus? Are you hearing his voice? You're tuned to his word, right? Are you following Jesus? Praise God. Guess what the promise is? Eternal life, and no one, no one can snatch you out of his hands. Amen? Isn't that a great promise? We do have security as believers. Okay, we're secure in Christ. Who's secure, by the way? Somebody who, is it say it's that somebody who, you know, confesses Christ at an altar call, but then refuses to follow him later? Is that who this promise is to? No, it's conditional upon those who continue to believe and continue to follow those who hear his voice. See, what happens, though, is the enemy likes to take promises and get you to rebel and tell you even if you rebel, the promise still applies to your life. That's how the enemy works. He knows the Bible, you guys. He knows the Bible better than you. He knows the Bible better than me. He knows the Bible better than all the theologians put together. He knows it really, really well. And he knows how to quote a promise. So he does two different things to get people on the broad road. He either tries to blind them from the cross and tell them that it's not just faith. So we know we're saved by grace through what? Faith. It's the gift of God, not a works so that anyone should boast. But there's a condition to our salvation. Do we go? We don't believe in universalism, amen? We don't tell everybody's saved. No, that's a lie. The road is narrow. You have to come to Christ. So we preach to people. We share the gospel with people. We don't say, well, hopefully you're one of the chosen ones. No, we tell them you have the responsibility to humbly, humble yourself before the Lord, right? Repent and put your faith in Christ. Turn to Christ. Turn, as John says, from, from darkness, as Jesus says, those who didn't come to refuse to turn from darkness to light. They love darkness more than light. But you have to turn from the darkness, and you have to embrace Christ as your Lord and Savior. Amen? Amen. You have to become a sheep. You have to hear his voice, respond, and follow him. Yet Satan wants us to believe that, you can, that this verse, this passage applies to you no matter what. I've shared this story before. You may have heard it, but it makes a great point. And when I was sharing the gospel, right here, we used to share on 3rd Street all the time. You know, but prior to that, we used to share on, uh, we still share at 3rd Street from time to time. We used to share on Hollywood uh, or Sunset and Highland, even Hollywood nearby Gower for a long time. We'd go there every Saturday night for hours We'd be there till 1.30 in the morning or so, you know. I brought my kids there witnessing. I'm like, what was I doing? Well, praise God, I'm glad I did that because I think it was good for them. We just had a, Lisa and myself and Josiah and Heather and Holly just had a great time together a couple days ago. And part of, one of the things we were talking about, they, they all were agreeing that you guys taking us out witnessing and sharing the gospel was such a good, had such an impact on our lives for Christ, you know. Jojo was here, we were just talking about that. And 
Uh, but it's a trip because, you guys, you, you have to realize that the enemy is very real. So how does he come in? Uh, we're witnessing over here in Simi Valley, because we weren't driving all the way out there anymore for a while. Before we started going to 3rd Street, actually, at Edwards Theater is back. Is it still called Edwards? It's not anymore. Some are saying yes, some are saying no. So you older folks are saying yes, the younger folks are saying no. So, <laughs> And some guy came out totally drunk, just drunker than drunk. The drunkest guy I think I've ever witnessed to. And I heard from a distance his headphones back in those days, people just had, and the music was just, it was like Iron Maiden or something, just blasted. I saw this guy coming at me. And I was like, man, that's got to be just blowing his ears out. And I used to listen to headphones and crank up Zeppelin and stuff. And that's why my wife, I'm like, what do you say? They ruined me more ways than one before I was a believer, but that stayed with me, you know. And uh, what's that? I'm kidding. You know? <laughs> and we're getting older. That doesn't help. <laughs> so anyway, uh, but he's coming at me and or coming toward me. And I was like, started sharing the gospel with him. And he said he was, I'm a Christian. He's so drunk. His eyes were just gone. He told him, trying to hold himself up. I'm like, I go, I go, man, I go. He goes, in fact, I'm a pastor's kid. And he mentioned the denomination he was, where his dad was a pastor and stuff, you know. Right when he said, I knew he was once saved, always saved. And then I said, aren't you concerned? I go, the Bible says drunkards will not inherit God's kingdom. Look, you can't be doing this. You're, you're believing a lie if you think you go to heaven. And he goes, he's all drunk. He goes, Nobody will snatch me out of his hand, Jesus said. And my heart just broke. It just broke. I mentioned 1 Corinthians 6 to him, drunkards won't inherit God's kingdom. I took him to Luke chapter 12. I said, look, who is the wise steward? Who's the faithful servant? It's my father's will to give you the kingdom little flock. He's talking to the sheep, right? He says, but if that servant, you know, he said, keep your lamps lit, because if that servant... That servant, the one who's faithful, goes and starts getting drunk with the drunkards and beating the maidservants, stuff like that. He says, I'll cut him in pieces and put him with the unbelievers. Then I told him, Revelation 21.8 says, the cowardly, the unbelieving, the unbelievers, the abominable murderers, whoremongers, sorcerers, liars, idolaters, all liars, their place will be the lake of fire. Wow, he sobered up. He said, I've never seen those verses before. I just pleaded with him, please see what you're doing here. And I'm telling you right now, he was probably really, really well taught in certain verses. But you have to make sure that you understand that you don't quote the promises and ignore the conditions to those promises. In fact, Satan's adept at doing that. Go to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. And when you get to Matthew chapter 4, there's a number of deceptions that Satan tries to use to Je against Jesus, and Jesus is in the wilderness. He's led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness, be tested by the devil. And I'm not going to go through all of them, but I do want you to look at, uh, which I think is really interesting, uh, one of the deceptions that Satan tries to use against him. And in chapter 4, go ahead and go to... Uh, Verse 5, then the devil, the second deception, second deception he tried, then the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, this is a trip because Satan is now quoting scripture. 
Told you, he knows the Bible really well. What does he do here, guys? He says, for it is written. He's telling Jesus what the Bible says. Jesus inspired the Bible. Isn't that a trip? He says it's written. He will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands, they will bear you up. So you will not strike your foot against a stone. He's quoting Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12. Which is a beautiful promise. But the promise is conditional upon seeking the Father, seeking the Lord, if you read the, the passage. It talks about those who dwell in the shelter of the Almighty, right? Those who make Him, God, their refuge. Not those who jump from the pinnacle of the temple, but those who go seek Him in His holy temple. He's saying, Jesus, come on, just, just showboat, man. Be a daredevil, you know? Jump off the pinnacle of the temple. Don't worry. God promised He'll send the angels to bear you up lest He dash your foot against a stone. He's quoting a promise. What if Jesus would have done that? Wouldn't have been a good ending there. But look what Jesus, look how Jesus responds. Wow, look at this. Jesus said to him, verse 7, Jesus said to him, on the other hand, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Wow. What did Jesus do? He countered Satan's misuse of a promise, making the promise unconditional is what Satan was trying to do, that even if you rebel against God's word, you're not making the Lord your refuge, you're just showing off before everybody, jumping for the pinnacle of the temple, showing people who you are. Don't worry, he's going to gather you up. Jesus is like, uh-uh, wrong. It's written, you shall not tempt the Lord, test the Lord thy God. In other words, Satan, guess what? You're taking scripture out of context. You're quoting a promise, but there's also a warning. Are you with me? So, when you're in rebellion to God, and this guy says to me, and he's drunk, he says, no one can snatch me out of his hand. That's from the pit of hell. Because it's a misuse of the text. Because the text applies to who? Those who continue to what? Hear and follow. Amen. Those who continue to hear and follow. That's the sheep. He wasn't like acting like a sheep. Because the Bible warns that sheep can harden their hearts and go astray and get involved in all kinds of folly. So it's interesting. You have these beautiful promises. Now back to, now back to go to John 15, because we just read John 10. John 10 is a beautiful promise, right? He gives us eternal life. Now some will say, well, if you could lose it, then the life was never eternal. That doesn't make any sense. It seems like it makes sense on the surface, but when you think about it, it doesn't. Well, wait a minute. If you can lose eternal life, how is it eternal life? Because the Bible says the life is in the Son. The Bible says he that has the Son has the life. He that does not have the Son does not have the life. If you have Christ, you have what? Eternal life. Amen? If you are in Christ, right? The Bible says that Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Amen? Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. 1 John chapter 1, first few verses, and the end of 1 John chapter 5 says that Jesus is the eternal life. Jesus is our life, amen? And if I'm in Christ, I have what? Eternal life. But if I forsake Christ, right, the eternal life doesn't cease to be eternal life. He's still eternal life, amen? I just don't have the eternal life. I'm not participating in it. Just as right now I am connected. Let's say there was eternal ap ap amplification here. You can hear my voice amplified for eternity if you stayed in this building. You wouldn't want that, okay? Lord, take me to heaven, okay? But, it, but guess what? And you can say, I have eternal amplification. 
Now, if I take the amplifier off my head, right, or the, the mic off my head and walk out of here, I no longer have the amplification, even though it would still be eternal amplification. I'm just not participating in it. Well, where does it teach that? Very clearly, in John 15. You just keep reading, and you have to believe John 10 and John 15. John 15. Go ahead and look at uh, verse 1. Everybody's there but me. I was in Mark 15. I don't know how I got there. John 15, Jesus says, I'm the vine, I'm the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that what? May bear more fruit. So praise God, man. If you're in Jesus, praise God. Sometimes, do you ever feel like you get pruned? Man, what? Ooh, oh, Lord, that hurt. I'm going through some hard times right now. He prunes us so we'll bear more fruit. Amen? That's what trials are about. Seek him through your trials. Don't waste your trials. When you're in a trial, do not waste your trial. Amen? Say, Lord, help me to seek you through it so I don't have to learn this lesson all over again. Amen? Verse 3. Now, he says, you are what? Already clean because the word which I have spoken to you. These, they're already forgiven. By the way, Judas has already left to commit apostasy. He already committed apostasy. He went to betray Jesus in chapter 13. He's only talking to people that are clean. In fact, he's only talking to 11 of his apostles at this point. Of course, it applies to us as well, but he's talking to definitely people that were saved. Amen? Those who are clean. Amen? Look what he says to them. Abide, the Greek word's meno. Abide in me and I in you, as a branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it what? Abides in the vine. So neither can you unless you abide in me. He says they have to remain. Meno, stay, continue, abide in him. Verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears what? Much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. Brothers and sisters, how many of you want to be fruit bearers as Christians? Abide in Christ, man. Stay close to Jesus. Amen? Abide in him through his word. You're doing that tonight. We're in the word together. Amen? Abide with him in prayer. Spending time with him in prayer. Make it a priority in your life to walk in faith. Amen? So you get up in the morning, you're like, I want to be a man. I want to be a woman of the word. Amen? And I want to be a person of prayer. I want to be a person of the word. None of us are going to do it perfectly, but you need to be in the faith. Amen? Abiding in Christ. Verse 6. This is where it gets hairy. If anyone does not what? If anyone does not abide, remain, stay, continue in me, he is thrown away what? As a branch. And what happens? And dries up. And they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are what? Burned. Now, who is he telling this to? His apostles. He's warning his apostles. He's warning those, the very people he said that are clean, not non-believers. Do you tell non-believers, hey, by the way, Frank, I know you don't love Jesus, and, but you know what? You're clean through the word he spoke to you. You need to remain in Jesus so you bear fruit. If you don't continue in Jesus, you'll be cut off as a branch from him. Would that apply to him, Frank, your non-believing friend at work? No. Does that apply to non-believers? No. Non-believers are not in him. He says, any branch in me. By the way, the Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, if anyone be in Christ Jesus, he is a what? New creation. Behold, old things have passed away and all things have become new. Amen? He's talking about those who are in Christ. Are non-believers in Christ? Are they branches growing because of the vine? In their attachment to him? No. This is a warning specifically to believers. Chuck Smith said years ago in a message that caught my ear as a young Christian, I was like, praise God. He said, he said uh, why did Jesus say this if he wasn't serious about it? And I always stuck in my head, like, praise God, Chuck. Preach it, man. Because people need to hear these warnings. 
you know? And I think it was right here that Alexander McLaren, a Baptist preacher, a Baptist preacher considered the, called the Prince of Expositors. I love Alexander McLaren. If you could read some of his stuff, he's just so eloquent in his writing. And I, I love a lot of his, what he wrote. He's amazing. And he was 1800s. And uh, he said, when people get to this verse, a lot of preachers, they put a blank piece of paper over this and skip it. It's there, though. I mean, Jesus warned. This is what blows me away. This is so foreign to so much of the body of Christ. Jesus warned his apostles almost exclusively about hell. Very rarely did he warn non-believers about hell. Go and look, and when Jesus talked about hell, he's talking to his own apostles often. He says to his apostles, don't fear man. He says, if you confess me before man, I'll confess you before the, the, my Father in heaven. Amen. He that endures the end will be saved, he says. That's all in Matthew 10. Also in Matthew 10, he said this, don't fear man, he can destroy your body, but fear God, he can destroy your body and your soul in hell. He's talking to his apostles. He's telling them to go and witness. That's church preaching, man. That's what blows me away is we think hell is a warning that we give to non-believers, and it is. Some say he never did that to non-believers. I can show you where he did do that with non-believers a couple times, but almost every time it's to the believers. It's to the faithful. It's to the apostles. That's heavy, isn't it? But now today, man, nobody would warn their church, the Christians in the church, that you have to abide or you can be cut off, thrown in the fire, and burned. Very few people warn, but that's what Jesus taught. If we're going to be faithful to his teachings, but guess what? Here's what Satan does. Hath God said? Well, no, I can't say that. That doesn't work with these believers because they believe the sufficiency of Scripture. But what he can say to us is, you can rebel against God and thou shalt surely not die. Oh, no, but Jesus said in John chapter 8, verse 15, 51, it is written, we can quote back to the enemy, he that keeps my word will never see death. And Satan says, Thou shalt surely not die no matter what. And then we could quote Paul in Romans 8, 12, and 13. The apostle Paul said, Brethren, we're not debtors to the flesh to live after the flesh, for if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if you through the Spirit do you mortify the deeds of the body, you shall live. And verse 14, as many as are led by the Spirit, these are the sons of God. He's talking about spiritual sonship, spiritual life. Paul says, ye shall die if you go back and live that way according to the flesh. Satan says, once you're saved, you're always saved. Thou shalt surely not die no matter what you do. That's, that's a doctrine of demons. We see it all the way in Genesis. We see Satan using a promise out of context, telling Jesus to jump from the pinnacle temple. But we have to counter. But what did Jesus do? He whipped out the sword of the Spirit. The sword of Spirit. Paul said, we take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Jesus took out, took out the sword of the Spirit and says, it is written, thou shalt not test the Lord thy God. And when somebody tells you you're saved no matter what you do, even if you rebel against God, say no. If I keep his word, I shall never see death. Amen? So he could, the enemy can misquote John chapter 10. Say, hey, nobody can snatch me out of the, 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 the hand of God. Well, you're right. Nobody can snatch you out of his hand. But guess what you can do? You can stop abiding in the vine. Be cut off, thrown in the fire, and be burned, though. Thus saith the Lord, it is written. Amen? Amen. Now, this, the reason, this, is a, this is a balanced approach to the Scripture. It takes the promises and warnings and puts them together. Some people just preach the promises. Some just preach the warnings. You'll never see them talk about John 10. John 10 is a beautiful promise. But we have to understand the context. Now, this is what blows me away, guys. Why I know this is a huge deception. Watch how many times Paul and the other apostles warn us not to be deceived on this doctrine. Watch this. 1 Corinthians 6. Now I'm going to ask you to go quickly. 
You guys with phones, you younger generation, you'll, you'll be doing really good because you just click, click, click. But you got a Bible like me? I love to feel the pages, though, you know? And, uh, and I, still, I use Bible apps, too, all the time, probably more than I flip pages. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, look what Paul says. He's, first of all, understand he's warning Christians here. Verse 8, on the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud. You do this even to your who? Brethren. He's talking about Gentiles, Corinthian church, brethren, Christians. And then he gives them a warning. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not what? Inherit the kingdom of God. Because Satan says the unrighteous will. Do not be what? You might want to underline that. Do not be deceived. Why does he say do not be deceived? Because so many people will be deceived. It's the Holy Spirit through Paul. Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. So if you're being taught that you can be in rebellion, you can be an adulterer, you can be a drunkard, you can be homosexual, you're still going to inherit the kingdom of God, and you're being taught that, and millions of Christians believe this, the Bible says you're what? It says you're what? You're deceived. It just blows me away. Well, but, but true Christians couldn't fall into that stuff. That's another deception. Let him who thinks he stand, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, take heed lest he fall. In fact, look at what he says in verse 15. Do you not know your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute may never be. He goes on to say, you're the temple of the Holy Spirit. He's warning that true believers can become one with a prostitute. He's warning them against it. And he says, no, you're not that you have been bought with a price. Glorify God in your body. No, you're not that you're the temple of the Holy Spirit. He's not warning non-believers. These are warnings to believers. Are you understanding that? Because so many, I love my Calvinistic brothers and sisters, but so many of them will say, oh, he must not be warning believers here because a true believer would never fall away like that. It must be to non-believers. No, 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 no. Please heed the warnings. Because this is a warning that a believer can become one of the prostitutes. He's been dealing with a brother who's having sex with his, his, his mom in chapter 5. Then he warns them, don't be deceived. You go into these lifestyles, you will not hear the kingdom of God. Now you have all kinds of gay churches saying, hey, you can be gay and be a Christian. And that's like having a drunk church. This is the church of the drunkards. We're just Christian drunks and we love it. And God blessing us. No, he's not. Brothers and sisters, he's warning believers not to be deceived. In fact, go now to Ephesians. Go to Ephesians chapter 5. Paul says, and go ahead and go to verse 4. There must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. Okay, don't be telling dirty jokes. Verse 5, for this you know with certainty that no, look at this, for this you know with what? certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. There it is again. Look at verse 6. Let no one what? Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be what? Partakers with them. In other words, don't be a partaker of God's wrath instead of entering the kingdom. Amen? He says, no for certain. Right? Don't be deceived. No, for certain. And by the way, well, he's not talking to Christians here because Christian could fall like that. Look at verse 8. For you were formerly what? Darkness, but now you are what? Light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. He's talking to the Christians, those who are in the light, that they can become partakers of the children of wrath and not inherit God's kingdom. And if you say, oh, no, that can't happen, then you're deceived because he says, don't be deceived on this issue. Amen? Okay, well, go to Galatians now. Go to Galatians. Uh, you want to back up a book. Look at chapter 5. 
Look at chapter 5. Let's make sure we're talking to believers again. He's definitely talking to Christians. Verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brethren. Brethren, you were called to freedom. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity of the flesh, but through love serve one another. He's talking about brothers who are free in Christ. Then he warns them. Look at verse 19. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I, now check this out, guys, of which I forewarn you, just as I what? Have forewarned you, were you? Ooh, wow, Paul's repetitious on this subject. Why does he say it to the Ephesians? Why does he say it to the Corinthians? Why does he say it to the Galatians? And the Galatians said, we've already heard you preach this. Well, he says, I'm going to preach it again because people need to hear it. He said, I forewarned you even as I forewarned you before. This is something that every preacher needs to keep warning about because it's a continuous temptation in the church, especially with the day and age that we live in where people are constantly hearing this whole once saved, always saved lie. I forewarn you just as I have forewarned you that those who what? Practice such things will not what? Inherit the kingdom of God. Come on, guys. Paul has given the vice list and said people will not inherit the kingdom of God four times at least. How do I know that? I just read it in Galatians. I just read it in Ephesians. I just read it in Corinthians. Well, that's only three. Yeah, but Paul said, I warned you even as I what? I had forewarned you, so I know he did at least four times. <laughs> oh, but this time he didn't say don't be deceived, though, Joe. Woo, yeah, he does. Go to chapter 6, verse 7. He says, do not be what? Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap what? Corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap what? Eternal life. Let us not lose heart in doing good. For in due time we will reap. Is there a period after that? No, we will reap what? If we do not grow weary. We need to continue in the faith. Amen? We need to continue in the faith. Guys, time will elude me if I continue bringing you to more verses. I'm going to give you a couple quotes instead of these verses, but I'm going to reference them in 1 John chapter 3. Paul says, or the Apostle John says, do not be deceived again. The children, in this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Everyone who does not practice righteousness, he says, is of the devil. He that's born of God practices righteousness. In the Greek, it's in the perfect tense. He that's born of God and continues to be born of God practices righteousness. He says, don't be deceived on that. Ooh, and there is again in James. In James chapter 1, verse 12. Blessed is the one who endures testing or temptation, prosmos. For after he has persevered, guess what? He'll receive the crown of life, which the Lord gives to all those who love him. And he contrasts the crown of life for those who persevere through the trials and continue in the faith with verses 13 through 16, who those who have continued in sin, and he says sin leads to death. He says, do not be deceived, my beloved brethren, verse 16. Five different times at least we have this warning not to go live a life of wickedness where it also says don't be deceived in that context. So this is why when I talk about, the Bible talks about doctrine of demons, and I see Satan from the very beginning trying to use promises out of context to deceive people. And then I see the Apostle Paul by the Holy Spirit over and over again saying, don't fall for it, don't fall for it, don't fall for it, don't be deceived. And now I look around the church today and most people are teaching, once you're saved, you're always saved, even if you're rebelling to God, and that fornicators and adulterers and effeminate and drunkards and all these folks will still inherit God's kingdom. Woo, man, and many of them are. It's very, very popular. I mean, you could go through the Bible Belt 
And all kinds of people are in rebellion to God throughout the Bible Belt, claim to be Christians, but they're getting drunk, they're chasing women, they're partying, they're, you know, and it breaks my heart because they've been taught this doctrine. The Bible says, if anyone be in Christ, he's a new creation. Behold, old things have passed away, all things have become new. And in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14 and 15, it says, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. You say, oh man, Joe, but I've fallen short, man. I blew it. I sinned. Everyone here has. But I did it more than once. Everybody here has. Joe, I've probably sinned hundreds of times since I've been a Christian. Everybody here has. The context is, are you practicing sin? Are you practicing rebellion? Are you rebelling to Jesus, doing your own thing, refusing to repent, refusing to ask for forgiveness of your sins? Or are you saying, Jesus, I love you. You're first in my life. You're my Lord and Savior. But, I, but you still fall short at times. But you're still confessing, but you're not practicing sin. You're not living in rebellion against him. Are you with me? We're saved by grace through faith. Not by works. But the Bible says, bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance. Amen. And faith without works is dead. Amen. Amen. So let me give you a few quotes from leaders who have warned about this. I think this is the trip. I just, you know, Martin Luther. Remember Martin Luther? He's the father of the Protestant Reformation. The whole world would pretty much be Catholic if God didn't use that guy to rise him up. He was far from perfect. But he started saying, no, we're saved by grace through faith. But he also taught faith without works was a dead faith. And he saw what Satan was trying to do by taking that doctrine and saying, oh, look, you're saved by faith now. You understand that. Martin Luther understood, man. He was trying to whip himself into the kingdom of God, flogging himself, doing all these things to be right with the, the, the Catholic version of God. And he realized, man, no, he read Galatians, man. The just shall live by faith. He read this in different, and he was blown away. And he's like, whoa, but guess what? Then Satan tried to take what he was teaching and say, ah, that means you could do anything you want after you're saved. And Luther realized that's a lie. Look what Luther wrote. I I tripped out. When I went through the book of Galatians as a young pastor, verse by verse, one of my commentators that I had was a commentator uh, in Galatians by Martin Luther. And look at what he says of this teaching that you you can fall away and still be saved. He says this, this evil is common and the most pernicious, listen to this, it's the most pernicious that Satan stirs up in the doctrine of faith. So guess what? Among the Protestant Christians, he said Satan was using this more than any other doctrine. That's why this is the biggest threat to the body of Christ. Namely, he says, that in very many, he turns this liberty where Christ has made us free into a liberty of the flesh. All boast of Christian liberty, and yet serving their own lust. They give themselves to covetousness, pride, envy, and such other vices. They therefore that turn the liberty of the Spirit into wantonness, to use their bodies and their goods after their own lust, have lost Christ. They've lost Christ and Christian liberty and have become bond slaves of the devil. For the devil, which has driven, was driven out of them, is returned with seven fiends worse than himself. Therefore, the end of these men is worse than it was at the beginning. Wow. I've got quote after quote after quote. I'm looking at my time, though. I've only got a couple minutes left. So. But I want to quote a couple of Calvinists. Calvinists that would warn against once saved, always saved. Okay? Because there's Calvinists that believe it's very wrong. List Arthur Pink. This is from Arthur Pink. And he's one of the most popular Calvinists that ever lived. And he wrote a book called Eternal Security. And he wrote that a lot of his fellow Calvinists were not preaching the warnings in the Bible. And he said, you have to preach the warnings because it's the warnings that keep people on the straight and narrow path to give them eternal life so they'll have eternal life in the end. What are you doing? And then he writes this in his book, Arthur Pink, one of the most popular Calvinist writers ever. He writes this, 
Thousands have been lulled into the fatal sleep uh, by the soothing lullaby, once saved, always saved. To imagine that if I commit my soul and its eternal interest into the hands of the Lord, henceforth relieves me of all obligation, is to accept a sugar-coated poison from the father of lies. Wow. Is that crazy? That's Arthur Pink, a Calvinist. A leading Calvinist. Charles Spurgeon said, another Calvinist, we detest the doctrine that a man who has once believed in Jesus will be saved even if he altogether forsook the path of obedience. Popular Calvinist Baptist theologian John Armstrong says, I was asked the question about a year ago by a group of pastors in Pennsylvania. What do you think is one of the, the one doctrine that is the most destructive in the life of the church today? And I said, the doctrine of eternal security. That's coming from some Calvinists. Because they recognize that a lot of the Calvinists, other Calvinists, are teaching, well, the Westminster Confession, the most popular Calvinist confession, says that the, the elect, they could fall all into diverse temptations and sins and false doctrines, but eventually they'll come back. So a lot of Calvinists believe you're going to come back, but the Bible doesn't teach you automatically to come back. Amen? So what happens is a lot of the Calvinists, then a lot of the Calvinists no longer taught perseverance of the saints, they taught preservation of the sinner, of the rebel that God will preserve you even if you're in rebellion to him. Okay? Where a lot of other Calvinists say, no, if you fall away, then you were never saved in the first place. Well, that's not true. You could have been saved. Like the prodigal son, he was once a son. Amen? The man that's forgiven 10,000 talents and then won't forgive the other one and ends up in hell, he was truly forgiven the 10,000 talents. Or he, and Jesus said, so my father to you, Peter. Peter's a saved person, right? So truly, there's warning to truly save people that they could fall away. Very clear in the Bible. I've been pointing that out through the Scripture. However, praise God, some Calvinists are standing up saying this is a lie. They see the lie too. So I, I encourage any Calvinists, and we have Calvinists that listen to our stuff and love our stuff, but I encourage my Calvinistic brethren to give the warnings, man. Look what Pink said. Look what Spurgeon said right there. Look what Armstrong said there. Give the warnings out because the body of Christ needs the warnings because it's God uses the warnings. It says, by my warnings, the Lord says in Psalm 19, my servant is warned. Amen. He keeps us on the straight and narrow. The promises encourage us to keep following because look what we have, but they don't encourage us to keep following. If we're told that we don't have to follow, we still get the promise. Amen. We have to persevere in the faith. As you said, he that keeps my words will never, my word will never see death. Amen. Praise God. Can you all please stand? I'm sorry. It was like a shotgun message. Boom, 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 boom. But, but uh, you guys see how important this truth is? Because I don't see more, any more. You know what the most important message is for the world out there? What they need to hear? Jesus died for their sins. Repent and put your faith in Christ. So you can have eternal life. Amen? You know what the most important teaching is for the church? Okay, you're saved. Now continue in the straight and narrow. Amen? Because it's the road that leads to life, Jesus said. Amen? But stay there. Abide in him. Amen? And continue.